on your community radio station, WERU. Support for WERU comes from Inner Tapestry, Maine's holistic journal, celebrating and supporting life, featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources. Available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org. Support for WERU also comes from Quantum Insulators of Belfast, serving Midcoast Maine as spray foam specialists. Licensed dealers of the Isonine portfolio of spray foam products, including commercial and residential applications applications with renewable and recyclable content. More information at quantuminsulators.com or 338-3077. And the time is just about 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Stay tuned for Common Ground. Good morning. Happy first Friday of the month. Welcome to Common Ground, the monthly radio forum on food and agriculture hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is Andrew Marshall. I'm the Educational Programs Director for MAFCA. And I'm joined in the studio with a number of folks, which I will introduce in a sec. But it's October here in Maine, and we're easing our way into fall here in northern New England. We're putting our gardens to bed and spending more time in the kitchen processing and also out in the woodlot and the woodshed. And thankfully, I think for a lot of us, things are beginning to slow down a little bit as far as the growing season goes. And we always uh, sort of take stock and be thankful for the diversity of work and activity that these seasonal transitions bring. But for a lot of us, one of the remaining tasks on our horticultural calendar is getting our garlic in the ground and tucking it in under a blanket of straw for the winter. And so today, we'll be talking, taking the hour to talk about that wonderful plant. Allium sativum, the stinking rose. It holds a powerful allure for many of us. It's exotic, potent, spicy, healing, delicious, and it has kind of a mythology all of its own. And so to dig into that topic, I'm joined this hour by my colleague Cheryl Wixon, who is the organic marketing specialist for Mafka and also a fantastic chef and cooker of garlic. <laughs> and also Tom Vigu from Kiwi Hill Farm in Sydney and an eminent hort- horticulturalist. And also on the phone, we have Dr. Eric Seidman, who's Mafka's crop specialist and probably needs no introduction. Eric, are you there? Yes, I am. Good morning, Andrew, and good morning, everyone else. Good morning. So, Tom, we're really glad to have you in the studio. It's sort of serendipitous that you are headed by on your way to, uh, to, um, uh, to the Haystack Mountain School this morning. Um, so we, we figured we'd grab you and... and uh, and talk a little bit about garlic, since it's one of your favorite crops. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you do there at Kiwi Hill in Sydney? Yes, I can do that. Um, Kiwi Hill Farm is a um, kind of a micro farm. It's a very small CSA and a subsistence farm. And we have a couple of cash crops. 
uh, garlic planting stock, and lo and behold, kiwis. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the name. (laughs) Hence the name Kiwi Hill Farm. And uh, we've been farming there for uh, over 20 years and uh, growing garlic the whole time. So we've learned quite a lot about it by now. And uh, what brought you to, uh, to specialize in garlic? Um, I guess garlic, like you said, has an allure or mythology about it. Uh, once one gets accustomed to growing it, it's a very rewarding crop because once it's well planted in the fall, um, you can get by with essentially doing nothing don't necessarily recommend that, but you can get by with doing nothing until it's time to pick it next August. And so, and it's up until the last couple of years, it has been very trouble-free in terms of pests and diseases. Now there are a few things that people have started to have problems with. But So that drew me into mm-hmm. planting a lot of garlic. Yes, and and we're we're definitely going to get into um, what you mentioned about the, the sort of the emerging difficulties of growing garlic um, in Maine. But first, let's let's talk more generally about garlic culture. Um, and I guess we could begin at the beginning and, and talk about what is garlic, what are some of the types of garlic and their differences, and what are some of the better suited varieties and types for uh, for our climate here in Maine. Okay. Um. There are, most most people seem to know there are two basic types of garlic, stiff neck and soft neck. And starting with the soft neck, the ones that you typically see for sale in groceries are silver skin garlics, which are soft neck. Um, not at all suited for growing in Maine, well suited for growing in California and Mexico, and hence that's how they, they got to be mm-hmm. the popular market type garlic. Um, the other soft neck and some of this type are suitable for growing in Maine, or artichoke, so-called garlics. Um, there's a couple kinds, inchileum, um, maybe a, let's see, is it Polish red, something like that. I don't have much experience with them. Um, I've grown mostly stiff-neck garlics, and there's quite a wide range of stif- stiff-neck garlics. Um, the most commonly known one is uh, rocamboles, and uh, there's a Maine heirloom called Phillips, which uh, was discovered up in Phillips, Maine, that is a very good rocambole. Um, and then there are um, um, purple stripes. That's another type of stiff neck, which is uh, Eastern European, Russian mostly. Um, and then there are the porcelain types, which are um, more... Let's see, West Asian, like Kazakhstan and Georgia, those areas. Um, The porcelain types um, are distinguished by having um, much smaller aerial bulbils, uh, more like the size of grains of wheat rather than like pea size, like broken balls. And that's uh, one of the visual differences in them. Anyhow, all the stiff necks are much better suited for growing in Maine than the soft necks. Do you have any particularly favorite uh, cultivars that that you like to grow? Uh, I do. That's a good point. Um, Garlic, maybe more than almost any other plant, is very uh, site-specific and site-adaptable. 
And so every garden has really a different garlic that's best suited for it. I grow two types, um, Georgian fire, which quite a few people in Maine are growing now, and another one that's much less common called bogatir. Uh, Bogatir is from the Moscow area, and I like to say Bogatir in Russian means very strong, very powerful, <laughs> which it is. Yeah. And the other one, Georgian fire from, so- from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, is more common here as a porcelain type. Um, Bogatir, by the way, is a purple stripe, marbled mm. purple stripe type. They both are very well adapted to my very light, sandy soil. Um, and... Um, I can't really tell you if they'd be adaptable to a heavy clay soil. Uh, some of the rocum bowls and some of the other types might be better there. It's very variable. You have to do a lot of experimenting to find what's best for your particular site. It sounds like fun. So you would recommend someone uh, sort of kind of diversifying and then sort of kind of putting things through a bit of a funnel. And yes, it's worth, it's worth trying a number of different types if you're just beginning with garlic and seeing yeah. what does best for you. Yeah. Um, I've grown some that other people have great luck with that just do terrible for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about the variety and sort of flavor and, and cooking capabilities among the different cultivars? Cheryl, do you have any favorite um, garlics to cook with? all of them (laughs) i don't have any specific variety that i have become wildly attached to i will tell you though from being in the kitchen i like larger cloves because they're a little easier to peel okay and um, i also find that depending upon how i store my garlic and how old it gets it has a lot. The flavor changes over time, and it you know develops some more complex and actually some little stronger flavors. Whereas in, when it's very first harvested and it really hasn't even dried yet and it's still green, it has a very nice, fresh and light flavor. And as the winter goes on, it gets a little stronger. And then of course in the spring, when it starts to get that little green sprout in the middle, it gets to be extremely strong. So, but I've just adapted my cooking techniques and. Um, uh, I have a tendency to to vary the amounts of garlic that I use and how I prepare it. You know, this time of year, it's it's really easy to toss whole cloves and chop it up and put it into everything and use, you know, copious amounts because it's, gosh, it's so great to have fresh garlic. And then I might back off a little bit and uh, try roasting it and so I can get some of those more mellow flavors. My favorite way to roast it is just slice the bottom off and set it uh, on, a, on a heavy dish and, and put olive oil over it, just shove it in the oven and, and roast it. And it uh, gets really caramelized and, and quite delicious. But I really haven't found a garlic that I don't love yet. So <laughs> I can say a little bit of something about flavor. Mm. Um, the two types that we grow, Georgian Fire and Bogatir, uh, are quite different, actually. Um, Georgian Fire and others of that type have a very deep, kind of robust flavor that... Uh, a musician friend of mine said, oh, it's kind of like the base section mm-hmm. of the garlic mm-hmm. world because mm-hmm. you might eat a dish that has Georgian fire in it. And the first bite you might not notice, and then the second bite you start to feel garlic inside of you. <laughs> the garlic burn. <laughs> whereas whereas Bogatir is like the rest of the orchestra. It's like blasting you immediately mm-hmm. with flavor. Mm-hmm. And so there are some differences like that when you cook with them. Eric, Yes, Andrew. Hi there. How you, you doing? 
Do you have any particular favorite garlic cultivars that you like? Uh, we got a new one that we started to grow four or five years ago called Russian Top Set. Um, and like Cheryl, I've come to like the larger clothes better, and, and so I've really uh, leaning towards that one, and we're increasing that one in our, our family of varieties we grow, and we're sort of cutting back on the typical Russian red and German extra hardy. Great. So, Tom, you give a talk at the fair, kind of walking us through garlic through the seasons, and what we were going to try to sort of um, reproduce that in a very telescoped form here. <laughs> um, so let's dive right in here. Um, so here we are in October. Uh, we're getting ready to plant. What are some of the things that we need to think about and prepare for? Well, garlic um, responds uh, to very uh, heavy fertility. Um, I use a lot of leaf mold in my garlic bed. Um, which it likes a lot. Um, it needs a nitrogen source as well, and uh, we've been using soybean meal the last few years. Tom, are you putting down your fertility in the fall, or are you top? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Completely fertilizing in the fall because um, I'd like to not have to disturb the soil again until time to harvest the garlic. And you're using fertility that does is not soluble and so will not be lost over the winter. Correct. I'm glad you pointed that out. Soybean meal is is uh, quite gradually available and will sit there for the winter without being lost. And uh, given decent spring conditions, will become available. And what rate what rate are you using on that? About three pounds per hundred square feet. Mm -hmm. Um, is the rate of my soybean meal. Um, minerals are worth adding to. We've been using azomite, the A to Z of minerals, including trace elements, which is a volcanic mineral that's very finely pulverized. Um, and having prepared the bed quite deeply, um, planting depths, the way I plant garlic is I hold the cloves between my thumb and fingers and push it in until my large knuckles are at soil surface. That's about three or four inches mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. And then the covering process will reduce that about an inch, so it ends up being more like three inches. Mm -hmm. um, it need not be firmed. Um, and then um, mulching is a very important consideration and of course straw is recommended as the best mulch which it probably is six or eight inches deep um, we also have used successfully hay um, leaves if they're very ground up not whole because they lie over each other overlapping each other and they will kind of suffocate the garlic um, but if they're chopped up that works fine um, and the garlic need never be disturbed because, of, I mean, uh, the mulch, I'm sorry, need never be disturbed. The garlic has a very strong sh emerging shoot in the spring and will come up through the mulch as long as it hasn't matted. If it's matted into a dense layer, then it gets trapped under there. But as long as it's fluffed up and airy, the garlic can easily get through it. We always go around in the spring and look for the one or two that get trapped. Freedom. Yes, you can see a bulge sometimes where one is trapped under a leaf or something that got in there, and you can dibble it out to free it up. 
So if you cruise the bed once in the spring, just to make sure they're all safely coming out. I have a question. What about something like chips or pine needles? Or is the acidity of that going to be such that it's not going to be a good mulch? Um, I would worry about chips robbing the nitrogen source. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, pine needles, um, I wouldn't worry so much about the acidity. Um, Pine needles might be okay. I've never heard of anybody trying Pine or spruce. Well, some of us that live down here where we don't have, you know, those kind of trees, well, that's all we've got is the spruce or the pine trees. Um, Like I said, I wouldn't worry about the acidity of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of depth, I might not be talking six or eight inches of them, maybe two or three or something Mm -hmm. at the Mm -hmm. most, Mm -hmm. um, because that's a lot denser, not as fluffy as... uh, deciduous leaves would mm-hmm. be okay thank you hmm. so uh tom what about spacing um spacing if you have really good fertility the maximum density i would say is about 40 square inches per plant which i plant mine on a five by eight grid i wouldn't go any closer than that they'd be struggling for they'd be fighting for space mm-hmm. um but that's that's the minimals i mean the the, the maximum density yep. up to you know six by 12 inches like that uh, or even eight by 12 inches if you're worried about your fertility um, should be plenty of space okay and why do we plant garlic in the fall ah that's a very good question um garlic has uh, rather a brief growing season when it emerges in the spring which can be pretty variable with when's the frost going out of the ground, garlic has to get its entire growth done by summer solstice because it's day-length sensitive. And after summer solstice, garlic is not sizing up anymore. It's only packing on density and, and, you know, it's maturing and getting firm. But all its growth is before the solstice. And so... One of the characteristics of garlic is it needs to have a couple of weeks of root growth happen before it can put up its sprout. And so if you spring plant it, you've lost a couple of weeks already or more because uh, fall-planted garlic comes up through barely thawed ground. It comes up the way tulips and other things do. The snow is still in patches next to it sometimes, and it's poking out. So if you plant garlic in the fall uh, like you should... Um, ideally about a month before the ground freezes because nobody knows when that is, so it's a crapshoot. But um, you kind of wing it for that. And um, garlic begins its root growth uh, with, with a critical humidity that's reached um, that stimulates root growth. And, it, and if it has a couple weeks after that critical humidity is reached it'll, uh, before the ground freezes, it'll uh, put out enough root growth so that in the spring it's ready to emerge immediately when the ground thaws. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that the, the root growth is actually happening in the winter before the ground freezes? Yeah, and yeah, then in late fall, yes. In late fall, and then it kind of goes to sleep. Yeah. And then and in the spring, as soon as it reaches that point, then it's just going to shoot that little guy. Mm, right. Very good. Very interesting. Right. And, and without any fall root growth, you've delayed you've, emergence sure. and you've lost some of your garlic size. Yeah, now, Tom, two things I'd add to that. One of them is you could tell them uh, about that crapshoot. If you put it in too early, what happens? Yes. Uh, and the other thing is if for one reason or another you don't get it planted in the fall, you, you may want to comment on those two things. Okay. 
Um, let's see. Ideally, planting a month before ground freezes. And um, when, when you're preparing your garlic stock for planting, you should, uh, you should keep in mind the temperature that the garlic planting stock is experiencing before it goes in the ground. Um, if you've kept your garlic planting stock in the house and it's only been warm and then you plant it, um, such garlic is going to be stimulated into uh, a greater number of cloves. It's going to divide into more cloves than it would if it had experienced some cold. And also, those bulbs, they may be large, and they may look nice for a bit, but they'll be quite uh, less dense in the end and won't have very good storability. Um, so garlic needs, uh, and this is another kind of crapshoot, it needs roughly two weeks of exposure to temperatures in the 40-degree range, 40 to 40 to 50-degree range. Um, and that prepares it for uh, a normal amount of division into cloves. And um, you kind of have to wing it. You know, you've stored it in a woodshed rather than in your house. And, um, yeah, you've had a couple frosty nights, and it's been kind of cool for a couple weeks. So that's when you should plant it. If, so far, it's been such a warm fall that uh, I wouldn't recommend planting garlic yet. It hasn't experienced enough cold yet. Um, and if you planted it this early, it would probably sprout in the fall, which you don't want to see. Exactly. Planting it too early, um, you not only get root growth, it'll decide that it's time to send up its shoot. And then that shoot is uh, potentially subjected to uh, winter injury. Um, I, in fact, saw one person's garlic germinated or, or sprouted during a January thaw. Mm. And they replanted garlic then. And both actually came up, but the one that was replanted during the thaw actually did better than the one that sprouted during the thaw. And that's because <laughs> it used some of its food reserve to sprout when it wasn't going to do any good because it was winter. Exactly. I just want to remind folks that you're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU. So, uh, what, um, so you got your... Your garlic in the ground. So, actually, when... Oh, we left something out, Andrew, that I, I think is worth mentioning, because some people, for one reason or another, personal tragedies or whatever, don't get it planted in the fall. You can plant it in the spring. You want to get it in the ground as early as you can. And just like Tom said, it's not going to produce a very large bulb because it's three weeks behind the stuff that would have uh, been planted in the fall. Mm -hmm. But you would still get garlic. Right, and if you've collected a number of varieties that uh, do well for you and you don't want to lose them, then it's certainly worth doing that to preserve what you have. So, Tom, do you have an idea of when you're going to get your garlic in the ground this year? <laughs> a month before the ground freezes. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. I have, a, I have a witch doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that goes with garlic, doesn't it? That's yes, part it of the does. mythology. <laughs> 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 um, I'm kind of shooting for know, maybe October 20th, like, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's just my rough guess right now. Good as any. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward to the, to the springtime and the garlic's emerging, and, and let's take us through some of the growth stages and what to be paying attention to. Um, there's, there's some, uh, 
some issues around whether to cut the scapes off or not, those sorts of things, foliar feeding. Okay. Um, well, I'll start with the foliar feeding. I've There have been springs when it's cold and wet and cold and wet and cold and wet, and the nitrogen source that you diligently added in the fall hasn't become available, and the garlic has yellow tips. Um, a situation like that, it may be worth doing some foliar feeding. Um, without those horrible conditions, it shouldn't be a necessary thing. Um, so garlic emerges as soon as the ground thaws, and so make sure that it all gets through its mulch. Um, there's controversy about removing mulch, leaving the mulch. I think leaving the mulch it preserves moisture, it moderates temperature fluctuation, and it controls weeds. Uh, all of things which, all those things you'd have to tend to if you didn't have the mulch there. You'd have to water and weed and and so I leave the mulch right there. I never remove it. Um, I agree. Good. Eric agrees. <laughs> Eric agrees. I'm, I'm glad. Um, and while we're on that topic of mulch, during the maturation phase, that is July, um, if you have a very wet soil, you might want to consider removing the mulch then, a couple of weeks before harvest time. Um, because uh, if it's quite wet in the soil, um, you then have um, superficial mold issues on your garlic wrappers. I and mean, it's not going to affect the garlic in a negative way except visually. Um, let's see. So back to spring. So the garlic emerges. Um, most garlic plants have uh, nine or ten leaves. And uh, very early in the spring, they're all there. And um, about just, just before or right around solstice time, uh, when all the leaves are mature, um, if it's a stiff-necked garlic, the scapes will begin to emerge out the top. And um, there's, there are those who remove the scapes right away and those who don't. And some think it makes a difference and some don't. Well, here's the, the real scoop about scapes is if you s remove them as soon as they appear, when they're just an inch or two tall, um, you're going to get the largest possible bulbs. And um, you'll get, with, with stiff-neck garlics, you can actually get them to be rather soft-necked because when you remove the scape that soon, the false stem that supports the scape um, mm -hmm. shrivels up in there. And I've mm -hmm. seen stiff-necked garlics become braidable when treated that way. Now, if you do remove the scapes right then, one of the things you sacrifice is storage life. Um, let's continue with the growth of the scape. The scape, if allowed to, to do what it, what it normally would do, um, it comes out po poking up and then it curls and then it gradually straightens up again. And, this, and, and as it's straightening up, the stalk becomes quite woody. And um, there's something going on hormonally between the scape and the bulb. And as the stalk becomes woody, there's a hormonal message from the scape that goes to the bulb telling it to get tough for winter. Such bulbs will store literally as much as two or three months longer than ones that you mm -hmm. remove the scapes from immediately when they emerge. 
And so removing the scapes gives you bigger bulbs, but you're sacrificing storability. In practice, what I do with mine is I remove the scapes immediately from about 80% of the crop. Those are going to be uh, bulbs that go into seed stock or into eating in fall, early winter. And um, the 20% that I leave on, I then remove as they start to get woody. I don't let them stay on there right till harvest time. So a couple of weeks before harvest, I'm removing them. Um, but by then, the garlic has sized up, and, and it's probably a little immaterial whether you remove them at that point or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the ones that become my long-term storage garlics. And do you ever propagate the bulbs? I have. Um, and that's an interesting point. Um, if you plant the aerial bulbs um, at garlic planting time, like now, um, next year each one will make a single round um, about the size of a normal clove of garlic. And if you then replant those or leave them in place to grow a second year, then they will differentiate into cloves. And make you know what, Thomas, this bulb. is an interesting thing. I've done that, and and more than half the time I get a tiny head of garlic, and the other half of the time I get the rounds that you're talking about. I've heard that from other and people as well. Tom Roberts and I are trying to figure out why, and we haven't mm-hmm. done it yet. I don't know the answer to that either, Eric. That's very interesting, and I've heard that from quite a few people. And uh, it's contradictory to the literature I've studied, but it's happening. <laughs> actually, the best thing I found for using them, the little bulbs, is actually planting them and harvesting garlic scallions in the spring. Just mm-hmm. like an onion scallion, except it'll be a garlic scallion. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Be, I think it would be a great marketing item, too, to bunch them up and sell them as garlic scallions. Yeah, Eric, why don't you just do a few for me next year, and I'll uh, play around <laughs> with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or, or garlic grass. If you plant them densely, you can just... Yes, right. right. Um, that's an inter- that rings up an interesting point about the aerial bulbs being different from different varieties of garlic. Um, Rocambole bulbs, which are pea-sized, are easy to plant singly. Um, the the bulbs from a porcelain type, which are more like the size of grains of wheat, are easier to, say, broadcast on an area where you would just uh, harvest it like you harvest mixed baby greens just by cutting it. You're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU. <coughs> This is about the time when we start opening the phones, but I'm going to hold off till maybe 20 of so we can get through a, a few more um, of the, the nuts and bolts that I wanted to get to today. Um, okay, so we're ready to harvest. What are we looking for? What, what, how are we timing harvest? Um, I think I mentioned earlier that garlic plants have about 10 leaves. As they mature, the bottom leaves uh, begin to dry and die first. Um, unlike onions, which, you, which are uh, exposed to the light and you allow to die down completely in the garden, if you do that to garlic, the, the bulb will open up, exposing the cloves to soil. And uh, So you need to harvest garlic when it is still 60% green. That is six green leaves left. Now, uh, it would be convenient if the leaves really died one by one from the bottom up completely before the next one went and died. But they start to yellow and brown from the tips, kind of all of them. But the the bottom ones definitely are gone first. But 
So I use, rather than necessarily counting six green leaves, I use the rule of like 60% green. You know, when you can look at the crop and kind of judge, all right, 40% of it's pretty dry. It's time to get it out of there. And um, garlic is a weird plant. That stalk is just supporting the scape. The leaves actually come from the base of the plant three inches down in the ground and under all that mulch. And each leaf wraps around the bulb. And so the paper wrappers that you find on your garlic bulb are actually the base of the leaf wrapped around the bulb. And so if you allow all the leaves to die, those paper wrappers are dying with the leaves and so they decompose in the soil, exposing the cloves. So you have to get them out of the ground while there are six green leaves left. Hang them in a shaded, airy place to dry. Um, and those six green leaves provide six paper wrappers, which when you then clean the garlic for storage and for kitchen use, you're going to lose a couple of wrappers uh, in that process, and you should have four good wrappers left and you're done cleaning the garlic. And so that's when you harvest, when there's six green leaves, and that's usually around the last week of July, first week of August, um, varying with different cultivars. So we talked about the consequences of leaving your garlic in too long and getting, letting it get over-mature. What about if, if uh, you yank it too soon? Um, I would say that yanking it too soon is not much of an issue, uh, more of an issue the other way. Um, I think you could harvest garlic two weeks earlier than you might normally do so if you had to for some schedule problems or something and probably not have much effect. Um, garlic is getting denser and harder and like that up until the time of harvest. So you might lose slightly density by harvesting it a couple of weeks early, but probably not very significant. Great. So err on the, the early side if you're going to err. Yes, definitely. Great. Okay, so it's out of the ground. We're bringing it to wherever we're going to cure it. What's the next step there, and what are some considerations for curing? You should never cure it in the sun. I mentioned earlier that onions are an above-ground plant. They sit there in the sun all the time. But garlic is a subterranean plant, or, or the head is. And when you expose it to the sun, negative things start to happen to it. And so you need to hang it in a shady place. There should be plenty of air movement, air circulation. I hang mine in bundles of about five, usually. Um, I used to use ten, but that was before our falls became as humid as they have been the last few years. And I had some, some mold issues with the six green leaves, you know, ten in a bundle. It was a little too much green, and so I went to five in a bundle, leaving space between the bundle, bundles hung from the rafters of my woodshed, in this case, um, a garage, any, any such place. If you can leave the doors open, would suffice. And you leave it there until it's completely cured. How do you know? Well, if it's a stiff neck, you take one and you, uh, with your pruners, cut the stalk off about an inch or an inch and a half above the bulb. And it should be corky dry. There should be no juice left. If you cut that stalk and there's still juice in there, it's not cured yet. And now the point of curing it is obviously for the winter storage. Is that correct? That's correct. It's certainly fine to eat it. We, <laughs> we can go ahead and eat it, right? <laughs> you can pull it, you know, at solstice time and eat it. 
<laughs> what, what about when you when we yank those plants? What about the dirt and the soil that's attached to them? Do we have to do anything to that, or does um, it? I I rub with one cuff of my hand the soil off the roots mm-hmm. if it's if the soil is wet and clinging on there, just so it's less mass to hang and dry. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, uh, you need do nothing until it's totally cured. And at the, after it's totally cured, and you've cut the stalks off, then the outer two wrappers rub off very easily and all the dirt and whatnot rubs off with them. And at that point, when you're cleaning the garlic for storage, you should also cut off the root mass um, just because it's dirt and you don't want it in your kitchen. And and if you're, uh, well, in my case, if I'm selling garlic stock, nobody wants to buy that soil from me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. A big warning is do not bang it against your boot to get that dirt off when you harvest it. Be gentle with the garlic. Thank mm-hmm. you for that, Eric. Yes, it is, it is tender and can be bruised, and that adversely affects storage and adversely affects the, the uh, likelihood of a good, strong uh, shoot emerging if you've planted it. And increases the likelihood of penicillium or some other mold getting in. Yes. Oh, that that might be a good segue into the next segment here. But before I, we segue into issues and management, uh, I just wanted to ask either of you, Eric or Tom, if you have any tips on sort of efficient bundling methods um, and curing. I actually don't bundle them for curing. I built myself tables with slats. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of look like a pallet. They're big tables, and we just drop the bulb upside down so the leaves hang down and the slats are close enough together to catch the, the bulb of the garlic. And so we have a whole big table of drying garlic, and you can do them in layers, too. They, if you have a lot of garlic, um, you can build table upon table um, and store quite a bit of garlic that way and letting it dry. So it, it, there's a lot more airflow because there are no garlic plants together. That sounds like a pretty good method. I bundle mine. Um, I use a string that's probably, eh, I don't know, it's a, it's a probably six foot long piece of jute twine that I've knotted together to form a, a continuous loop. And then I put it around the bundle of garlic. Um, how do I describe it? One, one end of the loop through the other end of the loop. So it just tightens around the, the bundle, and as the bundle shrinks, as it dries, it just gets tighter. It never mm-hmm. slips. Mm-hmm. And then I tie those to, I actually have what looks like clotheslines that are attached to my woodshed rafters. And I just tie them to that. And ours are upstairs in the barn where it's nice and dry. <coughs> we have doors that we open up on sunny days and close on rainy days. So, moving on to issues and problems. Uh, Eric, showtime. All right, well, uh, I'm glad you're doing the show because there are a couple of problems that are arising in the past five years, I would say, maybe a little longer, that are becoming very serious. Um, A lot of people have turned to garlic because it's, for the most part, free of insect and disease problems. Um, But over the last five years, there are three things that are moved into the state um, or have become very prevalent in the state. Um, the, I'll talk about the one that just moved in recently. It's called the bloat nematode. Uh, it wasn't here at all until probably three years ago. It was in Ontario, so it wasn't far away. It moved down into New York, and now it's in Maine. And the issue with the bloat nematode is that 
its most common way of being transmitted is by people planting infected seed. And so that, as garlic has become more and more popular and people are buying seed from all over the place and exchanging it, the bloat nematode is, is spreading, and it can totally wipe out your crop. Um, so the, the, what you see in the crop is that during the summer, some of the plants in the field may not look as thrifty as the other plants. They may get yellow leaves. There are lots of reasons gar garlic gets yellow leaves, so a picture of the yellow leaves doesn't help me at all. But when you harvest the garlic, if uh, it has no roots or no roots on one side of the plant and roots only on the other side of the plant, that's a good reason to suspect that you have a nematode feeding in the bulb. And the nematode does not move itself. It only lives in the bulb. It can survive in the soil, and it survives in debris. Um, so it won't be able to disseminate itself to do field. It needs somebody's help, either moving soil, moving garlic debris, or selling the bulb that's already infected. So that, that is the primary mechanism for spreading of this, right? The primary mechanism is people buying an infected bulb. Infected seed stock. That's oh. right. The next most common, and this one hasn't been discerned yet, but I think it's a, a possibility, is people buying improperly prepared compost that has garlic debris added to it. I see. And then the other way that you move it around your own farm is if you've got an infected field and you use a rototiller or dirty boots and bring soil from one field to another. Uh, Eric, does the frost kill it? No. The nematode can live in the soil. Um, if you do end up with a bloat nematode, and I'll bet some listeners have it, mm. one degree or another, it usually starts small because uh, people like Tom or me or you I want to add a new variety, and so we buy a new variety of garlic, and so we plant 10 or 15 bulbs worth of a new variety, and it turned out that we bought it infected. And so you, you, it's frequent that you may see just a handful of bulbs that were infected because the person who sold you the seed had the same problem, just a handful of bulbs. And then it'll spread, especially if you do the garlic year after year in the same place. Eric, and, can I ask you a question? Sure. Is, is the nematode feeding in the roots, or is it actually within the bulb? It's in the, the basal plate of the bulb. It'll feed off the basal plate, and the roots die off. If so the symptoms sometimes can look like fusarium basal rot, um, and that's why you would want to send it up to a lab to be tested, because the nematodes are microscopic. You can't see them. If you separate your planting stock really thoroughly so that there are no paper wrappers left on it and no bits of soil on it, can you avoid it, or is it going to no, it automatically isn't. get on those cloves? It, oh, you, you mean being spread from what? I don't think the spreading will take place in storage. The spreading would only take place uh, by planting the, an infected bulb or planting a bulb into infected soil. So if you, if you clean your, your planting stock down to really clean cloves, could you avoid it, or would, uh, it, or would it inevitably still be on those cloves? Yeah, I think. If you have, let's say you have five uh, heads of garlic that you've harvested that look suspicious, definitely what you're suggesting, separate them out, keep them away from the others. When you plant them, plant them separately so you don't infect a, a field if you're suspicious about them or don't plant them at all. Or probably best is to send an, an, what's a suspicious bulb up to the laboratory. If people need to, they can email me and I can give you the address where to send it. Um, or you could use Google. It's Steve Johnson is an extension agent, and he works out of the Presque Isle office of the University of Maine Extension Service. So with Google, you can get his address. 
And there's actually, there's also a form to fill out. You could uh, email him and get the form sent to you or email me and I'll send you the form. Um, so it's not, it's, I think what you're asking, is it going to, the infection going to take place in your storage where you're keeping all of the seed, getting ready to plant? No, it's not going to. It got infected during the summer. The so, nematode's unable to move along the dry surface of the barn floor or something like that. You're listening to Common Ground Radio on WERU. I'm going to okay. invite folks to start calling. I know we're, okay. we're, we're quarter of here. Um, so uh, give a holler if you want to call. The number is 469-0500. But until we get a call, we're going to keep charging on the on the pest and disease issue. So, uh, so I've got two more pests that I want to mention while we wait for some calls to come in. Um, the other one is probably even a more devastating pest to me because a crop rotation of probably four or five years to crops that are not hosts, and other hosts, by the way, of the nematode are things like celery and parsley, uh, hairy nightshade, Canada thistle, and I think if you don't grow any of those or anything in the allium family, you'll get away from the bloat nematode in probably four years. The other pest that I want to mention is a disease. It's called white rot. It's a fungus. It's not the same disease as white mold, which is very common in carrots and beans and peppers. White rot only affects the allium family. And okay. the reason this one's more devastating to me is because once you get it in the field, we're talking 15 to 20-year rotations, so those aren't really feasible. Yeah. So, Eric, hold off on the, on the white rot discussion. We do have a caller on the line. Good morning. Could you tell us who you are and where you're calling from? Uh, my name is Carol, and I am calling from the town of Hope. Hey, and Carol. I, I had two questions. I was horrified to hear about what you were just talking about with the white rot. Um, and I'm wondering if it's possible to uh, use the same precaution in growing parsley or celery or something like that. It, should it be kept away from the garlic as a precaution, or can you... Um, if you don't get infected seeds, can you avoid it, or is it something that um, passes like um, tomato blight fungus on the air or something? No, that's a good question. It does not move any other way than you bringing it in either in seed or garlic debris. And so okay. if you're careful where you buy your seed, garlic seed, and you're careful where you buy your compost, you're not going to bring it onto your farm, and you do not need to take any precautions. It doesn't blow in the wind. It doesn't move in the water. Okay, thank you. My other question was, <clears throat> garlic is one of my staple foods. I eat a lot of it. And uh, a couple of times uh, I went out in the spring and cut some green garlic shoots to put on dinner. And I became very ill, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And uh, the next time I chopped some green garlic shoots and put it in our food, I became extremely ill again. So I'm wondering if there's some sort of chemical in the shoots that some people are sensitive to. That's an interesting one. I'm going to leave this for Cheryl, but we eat garlic scallions a lot and garlic scapes. <clears throat> so it, it may be some people are allergic to it. Cheryl, do you have any ideas? I eat the scapes, and I have not had any trouble with eating cooked scapes, but it was the chopped raw oh. garlic greens that I sprinkled on top of something, like I would to do with chives. 
And, oh, my gosh, I became so sick almost, you know, within minutes. Were you the only person? Yeah. So you probably have a sensitivity to it in that form that it hasn't fully developed yet. I've never, I'm not really familiar with this. I haven't ever heard of it. But where it's happened to you twice, I think I just probably would avoid it and wait till you get to the... Well, that's what I've decided to do, but I found it so hard to believe because I (laughs) eat so much garlic. (laughs) But the clothes is what I normally eat. Yeah. So I, that would be my recommendation. And then, you know, you might actually, at some point in time, I don't know if you've ever been tested for allergies or something, but that might it might be worth your while to get tested for something like that. So Okay. Thanks so much for the show. All Garlic's right. one of my favorite foods. <laughs> well, thank you very much for calling. Keep us healthy. Yeah. Thanks. So, Eric, back to white rot. All and- right. And uh, you 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 left us with with a pretty scary number there, which is it might persist in in the soil for decades. Uh, yes, and so white rot. Uh, the one good thing about white rot is that I only know probably five farms that have it in Maine at the moment. And the reason I'm been spreading the word about white rot is we want to keep it that way. It too is most commonly spread by somebody buying uh, garlic seed that's infected. Uh, with white rot, what you will see is um, a white, fluffy mold growing on the head of garlic. And when it gets uh, really going, it will actually grow between the cloves within the head. And then uh, it will form what are called sclerotia. This is its reproductive structure. Sclerotia is just a dried-up piece of mycelium, the fungal body, that has become very resistant to weather and decay. And these sclerotia will get into the soil and they're very, very resistant to cold, hot, dry, wet, anything. They just sit there. The most fascinating thing about them is that they do not germinate um, unless there is a garlic or an onion or something else from that family growing near them. They've actually evolved to have a sensitivity to a chemical that is given off when onion seeds or garlic bulbs start growing, and they actually have to be within a couple of centimeters of an allium family crop growing before the sclerotia will germinate. And that's why it consists in the field without a host for so many years. Right. Well, I'm going to put you on hold there again because we have another caller on the line. Good morning. Could you tell us uh, what your name is and where you're calling from? Well, this is Bob, and I'm calling from my car, but I live in Penobscot, and I'm a small... Uh, home organic gardener. Hi, Bob. Do you have a question or a comment? Yes, comment. Um, before I became an organic gardener, I, I used to follow Jim Crockett's Victory Garden format and plant the garlic six inches on, on centers in a bed. And and then after I got to be uh, organic, organically minded, I started mulching it, and I found that with six inches on, on six to seven or eight inches on, on centers in the bed, that the garlics did fairly well. And after they got started, they, I had very little weed problem in that space. The garlic seems to eliminate all the, all the not eliminate, but it just suppresses all the weeds that come up. The other comment that I have to make is I string my garlic after I, after I harvest it, but I string it linearly. Uh, just as the, the gentleman said, he strings it on a piece of jute. I use uh, hay bale twine that I find, and I just string it and then hang them from nails. And I have like 10 or 15 of them 
linearly, and I can just pick one off anytime I want for when I'm getting ready to see, find seed or just for, for table use. So That's you're... all I have to say. I'm going to turn the radio on now. <laughs> Thanks so all much right? for your call. Thanks, Bob. Okay, Eric, <laughs> back to White Rod. <laughs> or anything else you want to talk about? Um, so white rod is it's similar. I'm just going to uh, emphasize that buying your seed from somebody you trust is the most important thing, not to spread white rot. If you do get white rot in, in a field or in your garden, uh, you're going to have to stop growing it there, and you certainly shouldn't be selling or sharing any seed from that. And how long do, is, it gonna, is that process going to be, Eric? 20 years? Yes, 15 to 20 years it can wow. take without a host. Now, how about the bloat nematode? How long does it take for that to... to That's only four years or so. Only four. <laughs> okay. That still seems like a very long time. Well, that's doable. I, I think most good farmers are in some sort of a three- to four-year rotation right. anyway with their garlic. And you said there was a third pest? Yes, the disease? third one is actually much more common but uh, less devastating, and that is botrytis rot of garlic. And I've actually got... Uh, two calls this week uh, on the same day within an hour of each other from different people. Uh, with is that, that's a botrytis, a similar genus as gray mold, but a different species. It's uh, also called botrytis rot, or the species is botrytis pori. And what you end up with is a head of garlic that is rotting, but you're going to see the sclerotia. It reproduces by sclerotia again, except they're giant black ones. So if you've harvested heads of garlic and you've got this big clump of black tissue on it, do not use that garlic for seed. That's the sclerotia. This one will not persist in the soil that long, um, so it is not as devastating as the other two. And that's also seed-borne predominantly? Yeah, exactly, predominantly by seed-borne. Yeah. So I think the, the take-home message from, every, um, from all of these, these emerging issues is, is be seed. really careful when you're buying in seed and there's no certification program like there is for potatoes currently and it is uh we wish there were <laughs> and there is talk about it steve johnson whom i mentioned before is uh trying to develop a seed certification for garlic as well great we have another i think another caller on the line hi there hello hi i i uh, wonder if anyone there has has had the experience of snails on the garlic. I have now just, uh, it's a new problem. They just came in, and snails love everything, and uh, almost unbelievably, they love garlic, one of their very favorite things. They get all over it. You try, I've tried to uh, pick it off, but I have uh, actually had uh, a lot of trouble with it. I've used many methods to get rid of them, but they're devastating. Snails. Um, my recommendation would be to try Sluggo. I've done that. They, you, you, <laughs> I, I, I've, I've done all, all the things that one, one uh, tries to do, and I'm, I'm still going to do it, but they are devastating. You're talking about thousands of them in, in a small area. Are they, they're damaging the leaves and the foliage, correct? They, they, they climb all over. They, they'll, they'll, eat, they'll sit anywhere, and they'll just they uh, you know, eat, suck it out or yep. whatever they do. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a good recommendation for them. What I tell people that your best recommendation is try to isolate your garlic with some sort of a dry moat around it, put it in a field and have a dry barrier that snails or slugs have to cross to get into the field. Uh, but, like, we just went through a week and a half of rain, so there's nothing you can do that's not going to work. 
Um, the one thing is they won't cross a copper barrier, and so if you're a small-scale grower and you're growing your garlic in a raised bed, you can rim the raised bed with copper flashing, and as long as there are no snails or slugs in the bed to start with, uh, they won't cross into it. Yeah, they are, and of course they are in, in, the, in the soil and in the mulch, and one, one does mm-hmm. like to use mulch with garlic, but, uh, but they, are, they are in the area. I've tried uh, these, uh, the, the copper wire, uh, but and I've tried the sluggo and uh, well I don't know how much sluggo I need and how much of that iron phosphate I should actually be putting in the soil it, it gets to be quite a lot after a while. It sounds like you have mutant snails. <laughs> <laughs> no, these snails are really spreading. I remember uh, probably ten years ago the only place I saw them was actually in your listening area down east. Um, but now I am getting calls from all over the. State, and I don't know why they're spreading so much, but I'm sorry to see them. And so yeah. for those people who are trying to garden in uh, or farm in damp areas, nails are becoming a major issue that I don't have a control for yet. They, they, they love everything, practically. Yeah. They, I mean, I've had them. They've, they've, they'll get on, they'll sit on basil. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, so I remember the first time I saw them, I actually liked seeing them because it was uncommon to see land snails. And now I don't want to see any more. There are just too many of them. And and here here's here's a um an, a a place where the, the there's a possibility that the mulch may be more of a of a detriment than it it will, would be a, a benefit. Right. So it's you know what I would recommend is is maybe removing that mulch um, and at least and you know kind of many little hammers approach the mulch the sluggo the copper um, and it could that that, that could you know, reduce it to a, a manageable place. And we have a few minutes left here. We're just so about ready to wrap up hand here, though. it over to Cheryl yeah. to speed talk our way through. <laughs> There's a lot of things happening around the state. <laughs> Many of these things you can find on our website, uh, mofka.org. But this weekend's the Nose to Tail Pork Workshop, which I do know is all sold out. The 21st of October is the Great Maine Apple Day. Do you have your favorite variety of apple that you have? You don't know what that tree is. You'd love to have it identified. Come on over to Unity from 12 to 4 for the Great Maine Apple Day. Our annual Farmer to Farmer Conference is November 9th through 11th. You can sign up on, on our website. Low Impact Forestry is November 15th through the 18th. So just because you're putting your garlic to bed doesn't mean that we still don't have a lot of exciting agricultural opportunities happening around the state. So, And our next show, too, is the first Friday of November, November 2nd. And we're going to be talking about brewing in Maine. And I don't think that's witch's brew either. I think it's something else. So... <laughs> That's right. Uh, and I want to thank Eric and Tom for joining us today. This has been a really great show. You're welcome, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Yes, uh, as always. Yes, thank you. It's it's been very enlightening and to learn about uh, all the wonderful things in the world of garlic. So <laughs> great. Go out and and plant your garden. Garden gar- garlic. <laughs> yep. <laughs>